Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Guten Tag or uh, Guten Morgen if you're on the West. It was, I can't, it's, you have to like roll the R a little bit, but I know I'm going to sound like I'm offending the kind people of uh, Germany, Switzerland, and Austria if I try. It is great to talk to you again back from the hometown here. I'm back in Canada. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show on True North. We were in Davos in the Swiss Alps last week, not on a skiing vacation. I would uh, certainly break my my ankles, legs, feet, hands, neck, and probably take out a couple of people along the way if I were to try skiing. No, we were chasing down elites on the streets of Davos, which uh, sometimes people were slipping a little bit. I had like uh, one woman who I think was like the deputy head of the World Trade Organization just like face plant in front of me. And I felt that would have been a rude time to ambush her. So we all uh, helped her up and she was on her merry way. But uh, if you followed our coverage in Davos last week, it was great to uh, have you tuned in. Thank you so much for doing that. We will have a, a bit of an update on, well, not an update, but we'll have a, a bit of a postmortem of that later on in the show. Also, our good friend and Monday correspondent, Chris Sims, from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation will be with us in, I think, about 12 minutes or so to talk about the fact that, well, you and I are grappling with inflation. Members of Parliament are getting yet another pay raise, one that is, uh, if, if my math is correct, which it usually isn't, but I think it is here, a raise that outpaces inflation. So they're actually making more money uh, well and above cost of living increases, even if they were entitled to that, which is uh, dubious at best. But I want to talk about the big news of the day first, which is the federal government taking immigration seriously. The Liberal government is uh, finally reigning in rampant, uh, rampant uh, increases to immigration, which are causing shortages of housing, of jobs, of uh, social welfare programs. Here is Immigration Minister Mark Miller. I am announcing three principal measures. One, a temporary two-year cap on new international student permits. It is the latest in a series of measures to improve program integrity and set international students up for the success in order to maintain uh, a sustainable level of temporary residence in Canada as well. To ensure that there is no further growth in the number of international students in Canada for 2024, we are setting a national application intake cap for a period of two years. For 2024, the cap is expected to result in approximately 364,000 approved study permits, a decrease of 35% from 2023. In the spirit of fairness, we are also allocating the cap space by province based on population, such as that some provinces will see much more significant reductions. We'll continue to work closely with those provinces and territories to put these measures into place as they will be responsible for determining how the cap is distributed between its designated learning institutions that they have jurisdiction over. I've had productive conversations in particular with British Columbia and Ontario already and we all recognize that more needs to be done to protect the integrity of our system while supporting international students. In addition, effective immediately, Applicants must provide a provincial attestation with their study permit application. Oh, sorry, sorry, I, I fell asleep there. Uh, that, okay, no, so 
I may have misled you when I said there was some big, bold changes that were taking place. Uh, the big, bold change from the government is that they are going to drop by 35% the number of international student visas they're approving. So they're going to have 360,000 now instead of, I think it was around 420,000. Okay, but the 500,000 a year uh, that are coming into Canada as new permanent residents. That number is still going to keep going up. And the number of temporary foreign workers, that's about half a million a year. That's going to continue going up. Uh, so whoop-de-doo, there are going to be sixty to 70,000 fewer international students coming into this country. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. They're trying to pretend that they're doing something, but they are not. And here's the thing about this. I am very much a believer in immigration. I think everyone has to be. We are a country that is going to go into demographic, well, it is in demographic decline. We're a country that is going to cease to have a population without immigration. But the problem is that the government has used this as an excuse and a pretext to have a very irresponsible approach to immigration because the government actually does not believe that there is anything worth protecting in this country. They believe that in the words of my old friend, Mark Stein, the Canadian society can just be like uh, the Queens terminal at Heathrow airport where its population is transient. It's made up of whoever happens to be walking by at a particular moment. There is no meaning to the word Canadian to the liberals. Now, international students are not permanent residents. There is a, a pathway for them to stay in Canada. Many do. But at a certain point, what we have to realize here is that international students are uh, coming to Canada because oftentimes they are looking for a way into the country that has nothing to do with their studies. Fraud in the international student uh, world is incredibly, incredibly rampant. The government has investigated this. They found that there are these uh, pseudo phony colleges that are operating out of strip malls in Brampton that are just giving out letters of acceptance. And the government has been going along with this. The government has been issuing people these visas. Uh, but for legitimate international students, you have universities that view them as major, major cash cows. These kids are paying $50,000 a year in tuition and none of the expectations that are there domestic students exist for international students. So universities love this. They'll just churn out letters of acceptance left, right, and center. And as a result, you have at universities like the U of T and Queens and Western and UBC, students that don't even have a basic proficiency in English that are being accepted and kept in and eventually graduated without ever actually developing a proficiency in English because the universities know they can profit. They can profit hugely from international students. So this has become, and I, again, this, there's nothing wrong with being an international student that says, I want to go to Western. Uh, uh, someone I, I knew somewhat well uh, was from Germany, went to uh, my alma mater. I knew someone from Sweden there. They all went for the right reasons. They took what they learned. They went elsewhere with it afterwards. But you have students that are using international student visas to do an end run around Canada's immigration. And many of them are being sold a bill of goods, which is absolutely uh, shambolic here. I have, for example, in my own community, I have a, a college that has a number, a huge number of Indian international students. The students are going to this school 
and they are living in absolute and abject poverty. If you order food delivery, it's one of these students overwhelmingly, no matter what day or time that's going to be delivering it to you. Uh, you have students that are staying in illegal housing situations because it's all they can afford. So they're shoving multiple beds into basement rooms that don't have windows illegally, passing them off as bedrooms because they can't afford to be here. And all of this is because you have universities, colleges, and the government that are juicing the numbers without any regard for what the situation on the ground looks like. Now, conservative leader Pierre Polyev did a press conference this morning, and he touched on that somewhat. Take a look. The question is, how do we get into this mess? We didn't, you know, most Canadians didn't even know there was an international student program eight years ago because it was so peaceful. They, they might have seen students happily walking off to class who were from another country. But we didn't think it was a problem because it wasn't. It worked. We had the most successful immigration system in the history of the world here in Canada. There are nations around the world that come to study how we got it so right for so long. And then along came Justin Trudeau. And through his total incompetence and irresponsibility, through his endless and nauseating virtue signaling, has destroyed that common sense consensus on immigration. Immigrants, international students, and temporary foreign workers are not to blame for his incompetence. He is to blame. He is the one that caused this mess. He is the one that brought hundreds of thousands of people here without homes to cram 16 or 17 into a one-bedroom or a basement apartment. He is the one that granted the work for the study permits. That is a federal responsibility. He and Sean Fraser granted the study permits for tens of thousands of students to come and go to fake colleges that the Liberal government now admits are, were quote, puppy mills. He did that. So let's not blame the students, let's not blame other levels of government, let's blame the one man who is responsible for this disaster, and that is our incompetent Prime Minister. That is a very valid point. Actually, it's a series of very valid points. What Pierre Polyev is saying there is what I've been talking about, what a number of people have been talking about. Uh, he takes the view that, look, we, we shouldn't blame the students for this. I would blame the students who knowingly engaged in fraud. I would blame the students that were going to do an end run around the immigration system, signing up for a school that there was no earthly reason to want to travel across the world to attend or a school that just blatantly didn't exist. So those students, I do blame. But students that have done the right thing, that have signed up for a university or college, wound up in Canada and only to find that, oh, well, I can't afford an apartment. I can't afford to buy food. I'm going to go to the food bank. I'm going to find social services. Or I'm just going to uh, shirk my studies because that's the only way I can get a job to afford to stay here and maybe hopefully uh, cobble together an education. So uh, students have been put into the middle of this, but I think we cannot, uh, we cannot exonerate from this the universities and colleges themselves, which have completely abandoned their mandate, which is to provide an education. And look, I've seen this. I, I've talked to students and, and heavens, I've talked to professors who have seen this decline, this decline in the caliber of the international students over years, because they know the universities are putting their bottom line above their mandate of providing an education. Now, as long as one of these international students doesn't uh, misgender someone, they will be fine even if they don't speak English and are unable to pen an essay that would be expected of anyone else to get a passing grade in the class. 
So no, when the government just wakes up one moment and says, hmm, I, I think we're, we're, we're going to drop it to 35% without doing anything else on immigration, I just have to roll my eyes and say, are you frigging kidding me? Because Canada has a population trap. Even, you know, economists who are not right-wingers are acknowledging this, where the government is saying, all right, well, no one's having kids. Uh, we don't want our population to be in decline, so we're going to bring in immigrants. Okay, great. And then they say, oh, well, no, the immigrants don't have houses. Uh, we aren't building enough houses. Let's build houses. Oh, well, there's no one to do the construction. So we need more immigrants to build the houses. Okay, let's bring in more immigrants. Oh, great. We've got some more houses. Oh, wait, no. Uh, but now uh, we, we, we need more for those immigrants to build those houses uh, to live in. And you end up in this seemingly endless cycle where we have a country that keeps rapidly increasing its number of immigrants every year while not being able to scale up all of the things you need to integrate immigrants into Canadian society, both economically and in terms of housing and jobs. And the thing missing from this, which I've talked about on the past and no one else wants to talk about, is that there is a non-economic dimension to immigration as well. There is a cultural and a social aspect to immigration, which no one liberal, conservative, or otherwise wants to talk about. I shouldn't say that. The liberals want to talk about it because they just want to call anyone racist if they bring it up. So I guess they do want to talk about it, but not in a constructive or productive way. But there is a cultural and social aspect to this. And I would say that most hardworking immigrants in this country are well aware of that because they came here because there is a work ethic and a set of values that they wanted for themselves and their families. And they, these people, these immigrants are the ones that oftentimes raise the biggest objections when people come here who do not want to integrate in the Canadian way of life. And to be honest, I can't blame them because we have a federal government, a media culture, an academic culture, which doesn't even seem to want to concede that there is a Canadian way of life that is worth protecting. We have a war on Canadian institutions from the government. So how can we expect immigrants to this country to want to uphold or protect any Canadian institutions. I mean, we can't even fly the flag at full mast in this country uh, for long periods of time. So how could we expect anyone who comes here to be proud of that flag and the country and what it stands for? So all of that is to say that absolutely there has been a, a tremendous erosion of the immigration consensus, and it's coincided with the Canadian values consensus. And this goes back far. I mean, look, this is a bigger problem than Justin Trudeau, because we're talking about a cultural phenomenon here. But Justin Trudeau has certainly taken that cultural phenomenon and embedded it into the Canadian political and legal uh, framework here, which is why we have these immigration numbers that have been so catastrophic for this country. So yeah, whoop-de-doo, a 35% reduction in international student visas. It's not going to amount to a hill of beans. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about, all of these politicians that pr have presided over this decline have gotten a pay raise. Have you gotten a pay raise yet this year? I don't uh, see a lot of hands out there. I mean, I'm looking at a camera, but I'm imagining that uh, if you're sitting in your living room or uh, driving around, you probably wouldn't have raised your hand for that had I actually asked you to in a serious way. Well, 
parliamentarians play by different rules than we do. Much as the folks we scrummed on the streets of Davos last week, it's rules for me and rules for thee. Never the twain shall meet. Uh, just to look at the numbers here, courtesy of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, MP pay increases are going up between $8,100 and over $16,000, depending on whether you are a lowly backbench MP, then you're on the bottom end, or if you are Justin Trudeau, he's on the top end. This is a 4.2% pay raise starting April 1st. Well, that is, as I understand it, larger than inflation. So we're not even just talking about keeping up with cost of living. We're talking about uh, actually getting more money for a job well done. I'm not exactly sure about that. Uh, Chris Sims is sure of most things, though, in this world. She is the Alberta Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and back with us as on every Monday. Uh, Chris, I'm not messing up the numbers here, right? This is more than inflation for the last year. As far as we can tell, yeah. Uh, we have to also keep in mind how much these MPs are paid for things like housing, right? All of their bills are paid, their mm -hmm. travel is paid, all that stuff that you and I will have to, you know, save money for things like your heating bills or transportation, anything like that, your rent, your mortgage, the vast majority of that is covered courtesy of the taxpayer. And we really need to stress here, the prime minister is now going to be making as of April 1st, once these pay raises kick in, the prime minister is now going to be paid more than $405,000. So just like picture <laughs> what you make, quadruple it, more than quadruple it. Uh, imagine yourself as the taxpayer, which you probably are, and you're working, you know, nine to five, you're working 40 hours a week. You probably work pretty hard for what you do earn. Now picture $405,000 plus expenses. So we have to keep in mind that he gets to stay in a mansion, which is called Rideau Cottage, but it's not a cottage, right next to the Governor General. And we pay for this massive lake house at Harrington Lake. And we pay for all of his transportation. So again, $405,000. This is what's annoying, though, is that we're not hearing enough members of Parliament, Andrew, speaking up against these pay hikes including from some of the usual suspects that we would be expecting to speak up against these automatic pay increases. So we want to see members of parliament really walk the talk here. If they want to truly save taxpayers money, they should do leadership things and lead by example and say, you know what? I'm going to donate all of my pay raise to charity. And as soon as my team, we don't care if it's the blue team or the orange team, as soon as my team is in power, I'm going to stop these MP pay increases and perhaps even cut member of parliament pay. That would be novel. And that's something we want to see coming out of Ottawa. And one thing that I, I would point out here as well is that this is exactly the problem of automatic increases. I, I don't think there should ever be an automatic escalator on a tax or on a pay increase because it lets politicians do exactly what they're doing now, which is say, oh, I didn't do it. I, I didn't vote for it. I mean, they should really have to vote for this every time they want to do it and, and own why they are, in fact, doing it. Yeah, we need to zero in on that as well, because we'll sometimes hear politicians say, oh, well, exactly what you said. I didn't vote for this. Yeah, we know. There is a law that automatically increases your pay on April 1st, no fooling. And you don't need to trot yourself into the House of Commons. You don't even need to sign up through Zoom or whatever terminology they're using there and vote for your own pay increase. But what's really disingenuous is when they throw their hands up in the air metaphorically and say, oh, what are we to do? It's automatic. 
they work in the legislature. They are legislators. They create law. They could stop this tomorrow if they felt like it. So it's not as if some sort of alien god of government is forcing Prime Minister Trudeau to take more than $405,000 home every year and is foisting this upon him unwillingly. That is not happening. Okay, he's the prime minister. They could stop this tomorrow if they felt like it. Apparently, though, they just don't feel like it. And it's it's always bad when politicians are taking big pay hikes. But especially now, as my friend Franco Terrazano points out, um, people are struggling to afford hamburger. Like I was just doing my family grocery shopping last night and I noticed a family ahead of me. The mom was putting away the grapes and putting away the stuff that she could, you know, eke out and do without with her kids that week. These are the people paying for these politicians' pay increases. So that's pretty gross. And we want to see them stopped. A lot of us, I can't speak for you, but a lot of us in, in the private sector during the lockdowns and the madness that was happening over the last four years, right in the heat of it and the teeth of it at the worst of it, a lot of people in the private sector took pay cuts. They probably took pay cuts for a long time. In some cases, they even lost their jobs. And now just imagine the small business owners who were completely locked out, frozen out, lost everything. These are the people who are paying for these politicians' pay increases. They've not missed one. Well, and I was just going to bring yeah. up the SEBA payouts. I mean, we have businesses across this country that cannot afford to pay back the, I, I think it's $40,000 in a lot of cases if people took the full amount uh, in SEBA loans. Now, yep. look, they, they took this back. They took this money. They knew they were going to have to pay it back. But you have businesses that are saying, I literally cannot afford this. Well, governments are finding uh, room in their budget to pay MPs more. And I, I, I don't want to do the math here, but you even take that lower number, $8,000 yep. and multiply it by 338. That's massive. Yeah, it's an enormous amount of money. And as far as the, you know, the $1.2 trillion debt goes, it's not going to balance our books, but it leads by example. And if we saw politicians and MPs leading by example and saying, you know what, I'm going to take a pay cut. Here's my stipend. Here's my pay stub. I'm taking this pay cut or I'm going to campaign on cutting everybody's pay. I'm going to make sure that we actually put our time and our dues in too. That would go a long way. And to your point on folks who were taking CERB, yeah, that needs to be payback, but we need to be as compassionate and kind and patient as possible. Because in many cases, these businesses were forced to lock down. They were forced to shut down. This is not something that they just woke up in 2020 and said, you know what feels like a fun idea? I'm going to completely freeze out all of my employees. I'm going to close the restaurant that I worked for for 20 years. They didn't, no sane person does that. So by and large, most of the folks who were taking those payments were doing so to keep the lights on somehow, to keep even their credit rating flowing in hopes that they could one day open up again. So yes, they do need to pay it back, but we need to be as calm and reasonable and kind as possible. And that is not something we're seeing coming from this federal government. It really reminds me, Andrew, remember back in the before times when the CRA was shaking down waitresses mm -hmm. for every single dollar tip they got? Yeah. They were going after girls working at the mall, Andrew, saying, did you get 40% off that pair of slacks? Well, that's a taxable benefit. Like, this is crazy. These are the same people jetting off to places like you just got back from and thank yeah. you for covering that, you know? 
Well, well, we'll talk about that in a moment. I just, I wanted to ask you the devil's advocate position here because we do hear mm -hmm. sometimes people say, listen, if you want to attract good people in politics that aren't there for the money, there needs to be some fair compensation. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to the argument in, in some way. I mean, not everyone can afford to do the Donald Trump thing and say, I'm going to donate my salary to charity. Or I think Javier Malay in Argentina, I think he did like a raffle for his salary, uh, which awesome. was like, again, it sounded impressive, like, you know, 25, you know, 2.5 million pesos, but it was like $2,000 or something. But 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 how should this be dealt with? Because obviously you can't just bake in a salary in you know 1867 and never increase it. So how should this be dealt with? As minimally as humanly possible. So let's start even from the ground up, from local politics, okay? Unfortunately, now you're seeing at local city halls in places like Calgary and Edmonton, the mayors being paid more than the premiers. You are seeing councillors whose life goal it is to park their butts at city council for the next 10, 15, 20 years and make a career of it. That was never the role of local government. Local government was always staffed by people who were former teachers, retired police officers, current shop owners, people who were either directly currently invested in what was going on in their neighborhoods, like a shopkeeper, or had already worked most of their lives and now had time to give back. That is the entire reason why we call it public service, okay? They should be paid a stipend for showing up to those meetings and doing the homework and writing the reports. That should not be a career goal of a four-year undergrad in poli-sci and city planning degree person. That is not what that is supposed to be for. That's where yeah. the rot starts, okay? It's that level of entitlement and permanent government that leads to this sort of nonsense. Then you jump up provincial. It's slightly better, slightly worse than city politics by and large. Now you're at the federal level. I would, I would turn the question around and say, are you getting good value for money? So when you think of all the different services you have from private corporations, whatever it is, internet service, food production, delivery time, all that stuff, you know, airplane tickets, Think of all of the services that you actually use and get over a calendar year. Ask yourself if you're getting good value for the money that you pay. Be as honest as you can. Mm -hmm. Now ask yourself if you're getting awesome value for money from your federal politicians. I'm venturing a guess that the answer is usually no. So the whole argument yeah. of, well, we need to attract good people, are we? All right, I have one weird idea I want to run by you. <laughs> okay. I, I, a part of it I don't like, but I think there's something to it if we massage it a little bit. For every dollar you cut in spending, you get 10% that goes to the House of Commons as salaries. I'm going to have to think about that, but yeah. I like it. Yeah, like it's it. you have like your base salary is like, you know, $100 a yep. week or something. But for every dollar you save that year, uh, you know, 10 cents of it goes into a pool that pays MPs, but you only get it if you voted in favor of the spending cut. That's so smart. Otherwise, like everyone cuts spending and then the NDP gets to like benefit from the uh, the spending cut commission. I don't know. I, there's something to this. I've got to figure out the fine tuned details. Have you bought the domain name yet or no? I don't know. What, what's the domain name? Like... Uh, <laughs> Cuts, cuts for paychecks, cuts for cuts for, yeah. What is it? Uh, cuts for cookies. When do you get your cookie? When you made your cut, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, uh, all right. We'll try to come up with a snappy Dollars name and we'll, uh, we'll, 
We'll put the domain. By the way, I would never normally tell a lady to disrobe, but I have to point out that the way your jacket is, it was saying fund CBC the entire time. Oh, interview. no. <laughs> Let's not do that. No. Although we did it, one of my colleagues did email and say he wanted uh, wanted that shirt. So. Uh... Oh, nice. Well, we don't make money off of them. They're at cost. I think they're only twenty bucks. Just go to our website. Like everything is included. We don't we don't make money off of it. We just want to spread the good word that we should defund the CBC, not fund. I should. You really actually had a. I haven't read it yet, but you flagged a, a CBC story for my producer. What's going on there? Very quickly, and we can touch on this again next week. Uh, while you guys were out holding truth to power and speaking truth to power, thank you very much to Davos for doing that, because that's where a lot of bad ideas come from, folks. We need to cut them off there. So thank you for doing that. Um, Blacklock's reporter uncovered the fact that, uh, you know how the CBC talks about how vitally important they are for Indigenous programming? Well, apparently 0.3%, so 0.3%, of their money goes towards indigenous programming and blacklocks found that they cut that budget the indigenous programming budget by about twenty five thousand dollars last year so the next time that the bigwigs at cbc try to say oh we're essential no you're not and in fact you cut that funding Nice. Well, I think that is definitely something we should look into. Yeah, CBC always loves to do the uh, glitzy, glamorous stuff and not the things that are actually in their mandate. Uh, we will uh, let you go there. Uh, Chris, I got it. Chops for checks. Nice. Yeah. Hey, chops for checks. For that, that's the initiative. It's like better than voter recall. Uh, you have to make chops to get your check. And if you do it, then we, we can talk. But uh, uh, Chris Sims, Alberta Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Always a pleasure. And we will talk to you next Monday. You bet. All right. Thanks very much, Chris. Ch I, that's got a nice ring to it. Chops for checks. All right. Well, I'm probably going to forget by the time we get off air. So I'll let you do the uh, do the domain name searching there. Uh, as you know, if you've watched this show for any considerable length of time, I don't do sports coverage. And when I do, it angers the people that like sports out there, of which I'm told there are two or three. Now, I don't know if UFC is itself a sport. Uh, when I first heard people talking about UFC, I thought they were talking about like the barcodes you scan at the grocery store, but I'm told that's uh, UP. But I know Sean saying MMA. I know what MMA is. It's a degree in multimedia arts. Um, oh, sorry, no mixed uh, mixed martial arts fight. I see Sean's giving me all these acronyms. He's like MMA, UFC, LMAO. Um, but uh, the uh, the point of this is that there is this big, huge uh, fighting championship, UFC. Uh, I've heard little snippets of it. Last week, I think there was some guy that was going off against Justin Trudeau. So it broke from the sports world into the political world. And that was how I was able to learn of it. But uh, there was this chant that was taking place at a UFC match last week, which I will share a redacted version with you for. Well, it's no fun when you have to bleep out the good word, but they were all saying F Trudeau, F Trudeau. It's uh, reminiscent of F Joe Biden, which was, uh, or let's go Brandon, if you're that one reporter, uh, that became a common refrain at NASCAR. Now, I, I don't believe in the incivility and profanity there, but uh, it was, well, I shouldn't say I don't believe in it. I've, I've used I've used dirty words. Sorry if my mother's watching, but uh, the point is here, this is what they've decided to do. I believe uh, Trudeau's son, uh, Xavier, was actually at that match. So 
I don't know if he was joining in the chant or if he was like just looking away, hoping that no one would notice him. Uh, but UFC has become now a little bit of a, a linchpin of the culture war against Trudeau. Uh, real people that are out there that aren't a fan of Canada's prime minister. Uh, you had that one UFC fighter last week that was criticizing him. And then there was a reporter that decided to bring up this uh, political aspect, not Trudeau specifically, but the politics of uh, what UFC fighters can say to Dana White, who's the head of the league. You obviously give a long leash to your fighters about you know what they can say when they are up there with a UFC microphone and you are getting into territory of homophobia, transphobia, like is there... I don't give anybody a leash. Well, I'm saying you... A leash? I'm st like... Free speech. When... Control what people say. Going to tell people what to believe. Going to tell people... I don't f***ing tell any other human being what to say, what to think, and there's no leashes on any of them. What is your question? I was asking that question. I'll move on, though. Yeah, uh, probably a good idea. You just, that's ridiculous to say I give somebody a leash. Free speech, brother. People can say whatever they want, and they can believe whatever they want. <laughs> I like the sheepishness at the end of like, what was your question? Well, that, that was my question, but I, I'm going to move on. Yeah. So right there, you had... Uh, I mean, because again, I, I, I get a sense from uh, people that watch sporting events that athletes are very tightly constrained in what they can say generally. And they're very heavily regulated and they get punished and penalized and sanctioned if they say the wrong thing. And it's kind of refreshing that here we have the head of this league saying, yeah, they can say what they want. It's free speech. Like it was just, he thought it was just an absurd question. So if a UFC fighter wants to get up there and talk about how he doesn't like Justin Trudeau and, and take him at the media for uh, being Canadian, then that is absolutely something that is within their prerogative in this league. I mean, clearly, the fans themselves are on board. And the wokeification of sports is a big reason that a lot of people are tuning out pro sports. So uh, that's the one thing I've learned about it anyway. And then every now and then uh, someone will tell me something and it'll be about the sports themselves. And I'm like, I'm sorry if I deceived you into thinking that I cared for a moment. I only care about... Uh, the stuff of it that is like nothing to do with sports. So I'm like, the, I'm like the one that watched the Super Bowl is one exception. I will watch the Super Bowl and enjoy the Super Bowl. And no, I'm not one of these people that just watches it for the halftime show. I actually know how football works, but nevertheless, I'm going to do a little bit of a debrief on our week in Davos last week because uh, we did have a, a great time there. I certainly did. We were able to ask questions to a lot of people like the head of the World Health Organization, uh, Tedros Adenham Ghebreyesus. I spoke to the Queen, Her Majesty, the Queen of the Netherlands. She was not in a chatty mood. Spoke to Australia's chief internet censor. Sorry, I mean e-safety commissioner Julie Inman Grant spoke to a number of people. We have a couple of interviews we'll share with you over the days that come. But I wanted to bring this up again because I think there was a big takeaway from all of this, which is that the World Economic Forum and its elites have been put on notice here. They are not used to, even though we've been doing this now for three years, being asked questions. They're used to Davos being their little safe space where no one can penetrate it because the World Economic Forum makes it very difficult to get there. It's very expensive to fly to Zurich. You've got to travel a bit from Zurich to get to Davos. Finding accommodations is next to impossible getting in and out of town is very difficult and they like that.
Because you know who it's not difficult to get in and out of town for? People that take a private jet, then hop into a helicopter, and then have a limo pick them up. And be, those are the people that dominate the group that we collectively refer to as the self-styled Davos elites. So we had this. Christia, Christia Freeland did not make a public appearance that I saw. She spoke on stage, did not see her on the streets, did not see her going in and out through the public entrance, which makes me wonder if perhaps she just did not want to be speaking to people, did not want anyone to ask her a question like I attempted to do last year. Uh, Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, had criticized Christian Freeland for being there. He, uh, well, a spokesperson from his office uh, referred to it as being high, I think it was high-flying, high-carbon hypocrisy was the line that they used. And then Polyev put out this tweet, taking aim at the Davos billionaires boarding their private jets after lecturing the world's working class about heating their homes and driving to work. He reiterated, his ban on all ministers from being involved in the World Economic Forum. So the reason that I bring this up to you is because we have all of the, really all of the arguments that exist about the World Economic Forum. All of them tend to be broken down into two main camps. You have on one side of it people that say, okay, this is uh, an important group. It's the way we get things done. It's the uh, group of people that matter. They make the differences. The, you know, the Klaus Schwab, the future is built by us. And then on the other hand, you have people that believe things that I would say are conspiratorial about it. People that believe things that are, uh, you know, blatantly untrue. And even a lot of the legitimate criticisms of them. I I've had this conversation with people about things they've said tend to get blown out of proportion. So own nothing and be happy. The World Economic Forum never said we are advocating for a future in which you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. They published an essay from a woman. She was an MP, I believe in Finland, or it was some Nordic or Scandinavian country, and she had sort of given her prediction for the future, and that was that. Now, does that excuse the bonkers idea? No. But I think it means you need to have a little bit of nuance with it. Same as the Yuvalidza bugs. I mean, you can buy meat in Davos. They're, they are all eating meat. They've never said, oh, okay, all of you uh, are going to live without meat. No, it's a lot more subtle than that. But the point that I've always made is that those sorts of ideas, those sorts of ideas have a home in Davos. And they have a home among the people that fly in those circles. And if you look at the things that they say very blatantly and brazenly, uh, they are all incredibly fervent in their advocacy for a transition away from oil and gas. I mean, you don't even need to be conspiratorial to find the danger in that. And so few people, as I talked about on one of my shows last week, are willing to stand up and say, whoa, hang on, this just is not going to fly. This just will not work. And that's why when you had someone like Javier Malay go in there, drop the mic and say, uh, we reject socialism, we defend free markets, we defend capitalism, we defend profit. A lot of them are like, oh, well, I, we, we, we've never really heard anyone talk to us like that before. And I don't know if he's going to be invited back. Maybe they will just to sort of tell people, oh, no, see, we entertain all perspectives. But uh, nevertheless, we'll have more as the week continues. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.